Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 141 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan is the sound recordist. Friendly or hello. Guys, it's not a competition. Yeah, I also don't know why you think adding an adjective to something like makes the emotion be there. It's declarative. Like, you can't just say happy at somebody and then they're happy. Yeah, I wouldn't say that about someone who shook my hand and said, warm greeting. I wouldn't be like, oh, that person is so warm. I'd be like, "Mm, something's wrong with them. That person's a cat wearing a suit who learned English somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, when the um, coronavirus was just starting out, people were starting to do social distancing. One thing people were saying was, instead of shaking hands, say, verbal salutations, verbal salutations. (laughs) Who said this? Is this Tumblr personified? I heard it on our podcast. Must be true. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> That's wild. I want all our listeners to keep that in mind. Everything you hear on this podcast is 100% true. I also just want our listeners to know that my cat Wallace is walking up to the mic and like really wanting to participate today. Let him. It is. A, we are doing cat's eye. Oh. oh. <laughs> he also keeps talking about how he's um, Lindsay Buckingham and I'm Stevie Nicks and like it's very rude. Um, I'm sorry, we can unpack that he's talking to at a later podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we can also unpack the wild dynamics between Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks that that relationship implies. Right, exactly. (laughs) Wallace and I are very complicated. How do we get here? Um, Dylan sent me an interesting article about what authors are doing during quarantine, which I thought was kind of funny. Wally Lamb got a Fitbit with intentions of being more fit, and he failed. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. Tough time to start working out. Yeah, true. Judy Bloom said she was going to get a lot of writing done, and she hasn't. But she's gotten a lot of reading done. Is she still cranking out books? I mean, I guess so. <laughs> Beverly Cleary just turned 104. I saw that. Did you see the tweet about the guy who asked her to have, what was it, Ramona and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles meet up? And she said she'd do it if she turned 104. Beverly, it's time. I mean, I haven't read anything past Ramona the Pest, but I would pick that book up. (laughs) How's life in your guys' social distancing cubes, spheres? What do we call them? Salutations. Salutations. (laughs) It's fine over here in Brooklyn. I mean, it's not fine. It's not like the epicenter of the virus in the U.S., but um, (laughs) no, it's, I mean, it continues to be weird and I'm trying to stay busy as much as possible. I was running a crazy workshop from my house this last week because work somehow soldiers on, which is, which is nice, but it was sort of a weird situation to be like talking to people all over the world from this little computer where I didn't have pants on and trying to have some sort of (laughs) business um, authority. I guarantee nobody had pants on, Andrew. Oh, yeah, absolutely no one had pants on. One little fun thing I wanted to say, and I didn't realize this until we started recording, but um, a lot of like local places near me are doing delivery services that aren't normally doing it, like as you've mentioned, bookstores and such. Um, but this brewery called Three's Brewing that's in Brooklyn, uh, in Gowanus, is doing beer delivery, which is really cool. And I opened one for the podcast, and it's, it's called Unreliable Narrator. Mm. And I didn't even realize it was going to be book-themed until we got here. What a great name for a beer. Yeah, it's, it's great. This isn't a, an ad for Three's Brewing by any means, <laughs> but if you have local businesses who are doing delivery service and you have the means to do it, you know, toss a couple bucks their way. Help them get through this. And maybe you too, while you're recording your podcast, will find a, a fun coincidence <laughs> like that. Yeah, that's nice. Toby, how's it in your place? Things are going fantastic. Uh, Ganon still has a, a strong hold on Hyrule, <laughs> but uh, not for much longer. I really think uh, I really think I've got him on the run. There's like two big lasers aimed at his castle. Um, no, but that's how I'm doing. <laughs> I, I heard you um, discovered a, a horse god. Yep, I resurrected a horse. That was a big big moment in my week. <laughs> um, I really loved that horse. It was the biggest <laughs> horse in the land, and I was sad when it died. Anyway, uh, yeah, no, it, it's been it's been all right around here. Like, you know, same as Andrew. Pretty weird. But uh, me and my wife are really enjoying the extra time to kind of sit around and get a lot of reading done and engage in some hobbies. And yeah, luckily, we're all safe and secure. So I don't know. We're, we're doing okay. That's great. That's good. Over here, there's only two things to report. Well, three things. Number one, in Animal Crossing, I caught an oarfish. This is huge. 
This oarfish is like twice the size of me. Very exciting. It was so exciting you posted it on the two readless Instagram. Yeah. Oh. And nobody commented. I should I should post a post of my horse that I brought back from the dead because he's more than two times the size of Link. He's he's enormous. He's the biggest horse in the land. I don't know if I mentioned that. <clears throat> I should post a picture of Bob Balaban getting his third straight MVP. <laughs> Dylan, in his video game, has trained his dog friend to tase people. That's exciting. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> We're all living such different lives I know. right now. Um, but also, I've noticed that a lot of people have been getting into jigsaw puzzles, which is exciting for me. I feel like they finally understand me, which is cool. And I've had this weird sudden impulse to create a nursery for our baby. And I've been... Is it is it that weird? Is that a strange impulse? It's not strange. It's just before, like, last week, it was something that I was dreading and like, oh, gosh, this is going to be a chore. And now it's like I need to do it. And apparently this happens around now, which is the beginning of the third trimester, is like a desire to, quote, nest. So mm. I'm creating a nest. Hmm. I mean, I have some old newspapers uh, and like <laughs> deflated balloons and like sparkly bits of plastic if you want them. We're going to move um, one of our bookshelves into the nursery so we can rearrange the house a bit. And I've already gotten excited about like which kids books I can put on the shelf. And Dylan is like, our baby's not going to be able to read for many years. You can't put <laughs> Harry Potter on there. And I'm like, yeah, but. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine if that like. Your baby is like one year old and you come in and it's like reading the seventh Harry Potter book. And it's like, I finished, Dada. I finished nah. before you did, finished Dada. before, Dylan. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get into the episode. This week, Toby had a book chosen at random from his shelf. Toby, what book did you read? I had Cat's Eye by Margaret Atwood. Ooh, cat, cat, cat. Meow, meow, meow. Meow, meow, meow. Meow, meow, meow. Was that Jack's meowing exactly when yeah. we started saying the word cat's yes. eye? We should definitely like I should keep, keep that, that in. in. Yes. <laughs> um, so here is my, I won't say logline because it's two sentences, but here's my summary. In Margaret Atwood's Cat's Eye, Elaine Risley, a semi-successful painter and ultra-successful bitter person, returns to her home city of Toronto to attend a retrospective of her work put on by an up-and-coming gallery. In the days leading up to her show, Elaine revisits the powerful memories that continually haunt her paintings, particularly her experiences with a childhood tormentor named Cordelia. So, that's the that's what the book is generally about. It is about Elaine and her return to Toronto, a place that she has kind of fled after living there from when she was roughly six or seven years old to maybe her early 30s. And it kind of very transparently uses the idea of a retrospective of paintings to be like a retrospective on her life. It's like her combing back through her life and kind of making sense of where she is and who she is as a person. Um, I think when this book got picked for me, the first thing I mentioned was I was like, oh yeah, I'm excited. That thing looks so cool. It has a cool cover. And my first impression of this book is that the cover is intentionally misleading. Oh, no. Um, it, uh, <laughs> um, it was published directly after The Handmaid's Tale. And I have imagined the conversation she must have had with her publisher a couple times where her publisher is like, oh, there's no genre elements to this at all. There's no, like, historical murder. There's no sci-fi elements. And Margaret Atwood's like, nope. And so they definitely decided to make the cover what it is, which is ostensibly one of her paintings, but the cover is like this cloaked, hooded figure hovering in the air, holding like a blue glowing orb. And maybe I'm colored because this is the kind of stuff I like to read, but it makes me think of like sci-fi or fantasy elements. And I really don't think that's a, a mistake. So to anyone like thinking about reading this book, I will just say this book contains zero genre elements. It is a normal story of a normal woman living in our world in contemporary times. That tricked me too. I assumed that the orb was the cat's eye. Yeah. Well, you assumed wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I do think they are, like, to be fair to them, um, that picture is kind of described as being sort of one of her paintings that she makes, but I think it's a bit of a cheat. I think it's a bit of a promotional thing. Um, and to be honest, like, it's it's kind of like when you see a preview for a movie. Maybe it's like some kind of artsy movie and they make it out to be like an action comedy and you go and you're like, oh, well, I feel tricked and a little bit upset that this isn't <laughs> this isn't what I like paid for or what I thought I was going to get. So I hate that. Like, I, I hate yeah, that. I feel yeah. like often it's like if you had told me what this was beforehand, yep. I would have still liked it. But 100%. now my expectations are let down. I feel like that happens with horror movies a lot. Yeah. That 
you think are going to be really scary and it turns out they're more like atmospheric and like just kind of creepy. Yeah. Yes. That was honestly, that was a big hurdle for me to get over with this book because I kind of had those expectations. Um, Another hurdle was that at the beginning of this book, Elaine is presented as, uh, I don't know, I love Margaret Atwood and she's an amazing writer. And so when I was presented with Elaine at the beginning of this book, I was surprised to find her kind of a, like a common trite character that is like the character of like the bitter jaded artist. And, you know, I have to be honest about like my reading experience, which is that I started this book right when things were getting really, really serious <laughs> with COVID-19. And so her kind of wandering around Toronto and being kind of sad that it's gentrified and sad that about her life as a successful artist, I was like, I am having a really hard time relating to this <laughs> book really, really hard. Like, these do not seem like big problems. You know, if I hadn't had faith in Margaret Atwood um, and, you know, evidence in the book, like, despite all of my qualms with it, right from the beginning, just gorgeous, amazing sentences, you know, and observations about life that really pull you along. So luckily, it had those elements to it. So the magic of this book and when it really starts to pick up is um, when Elaine has kind of settled into her, quote, present day life in Toronto, and then she starts to think back on her childhood. And she describes herself as a girl who always kind of felt more comfortable around boys um, because she has an elder brother, Stephen. Stephen was one of my favorite elements of the book because he's a couple years older than her and he's extremely intelligent. He's interested in like physics and time, but she does this interesting thing with him where Elaine never seems to really understand Stephen or be able to be very close to him, but they're still family. And it's It's just such an interesting depiction of being close to someone, but also not knowing them really at all. Um, And I think she plays with that wonderfully over the course of the book. So yeah, so she feels like she's more comfortable around boys. She feels she's more comfortable in a kind of quote unquote, like typical masculine atmosphere. And this is something that Elaine struggles with her whole life is the kind of where she fits in according to her gender. I found it really interesting and really well done. But her insecurity about like feeling feminine leads her to kind of fall in with this band of horrific little girls. And the ringleader of these little girls um, is a young woman named Cordelia. And Cordelia is basically a sadist. And the book really gets going when Cordelia begins to kind of exercise her power over Elaine and kind of psychologically torture her. And I want to read an excerpt right now of one of the images that really stuck out for me in this book uh, of Cordelia kind of being a monster. I think Elaine is probably in her early teens um, and she is walking around with her friend Cordelia and a couple other girls that are kind of in the pack they run with um, and they're walking home from school. Cordelia says, think of 10 stacks of plates. Those are your 10 chances. Every time I do something wrong, a stack of plates comes crashing down. I can see these plates. Cordelia can see them too, because she's the one who says crash. Grace can see them a little, but her crashes are tentative. She looks to Cordelia for confirmation. Carol tries a crash once or twice, but is scoffed at. That wasn't a crash. Only four left, says Cordelia. You better watch yourself. Well, I say nothing. Wipe that smirk off your face, says Cordelia. I say nothing. Crash, says Cordelia. Only three left. Nobody ever says what will happen if all the stacks of plates fall down. Ooh. Yeah. That's <laughs> it's, incredibly creepy. Yeah. And, and and that kind of dynamic, the fascinating world of child cruelty to other children is not, you know, unexplored other places. But I think Margaret Atwood does a really good version of it here. That is the kind of foundation of the book. Elaine ends up going through her whole life, um, way past that childhood, like all the way through adulthood. Her and Cordelia's relationship changes back and forth in a way that actually reminded me of Normal People by Sally Rooney, where um, it's kind of the same people interacting with each other over and over again, and the power dynamic tends to shift back and forth, and what that says about who they are as people, and kind of what you do when maybe the shoe is on the other foot, and, and you have a chance at quote-unquote revenge or anything like that. And she does, I think, an amazing job of taking this stereotype of the bitter artist and really dissecting it beautifully. And by the end of the book, you don't feel like she's a caricature at all or like a trite character. You feel like, oh, this is why this is a character that so many authors use because it's such a powerful and interesting way to inspect humanity. Um, But Atwood takes it so much deeper than honestly I feel like I've ever experienced it before. Um, So it really turned around for me. 
Um, she also kind of delves into uh, examinations of issues like female friendship, gender dynamics, issues of art and personal expression, the process of aging. And ultimately, I think it's a book about the unknowability of other people, um, from people who are your closest family members to people who happen to be your most bitter enemies. So I will say one final thing um, that is very intriguing to me as a person who really likes Margaret Atwood and has is deeply interested in her. This was published, as I said, after The Handmaid's Tale, directly after, and Elaine is an artist, and her art is continually being co-opted and interpreted by people with their own agenda. And she spends a lot of the book kind of in her head or out loud saying, well, that's not what I meant by that, and you're using the, my art for to say what you want to say. I know that... Obviously, Atwood is also Canadian. She grew up part of her life in Toronto. I would be curious to do more research and find out how much of this she would say is autobiographical. I'm not under any impression that it's 100% autobiographical, but it just is very intriguing, especially as a person who came out with a book, The Handmaid's Tale, that's like one of the biggest works of you know recent years. Um, so overall, this book definitely came around for me. Um, at the beginning, I was really not enjoying it very much at all, but I ended up giving it four stars. Nice. Awesome. I was really worried that at the beginning of your review that it was just going to be a slog and you weren't, it wasn't going to turn around. So I'm glad that you found a, you found a nice pivot there. Yeah. I, I, I expected the same thing. Honestly, I was for the first like hundred pages. I was like, Oh no, but it really, I, I really came around on it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I wonder how many stacks of plates Margaret Atwood knocked down. <laughs> yeah. That image uh, just stuck with me. I, I like. I didn't bookmark it at the time, but when I thought back on what quote I wanted to read, I, I was like, oh, it's got to be the stack of plates thing. Ooh. So you said four stars, right? Four stars. And I do own this physical copy. Um, and actually, I believe my wife bought it at a used book sale. So we'll keep it on the shelf because I don't think she's read it yet. <laughs> You're not throwing away her book. Yeah, throw away good. the book. I'm done with it. <laughs> Andrew, I know that uh, we've already covered Margaret Atwood before with Alias Grace, but do you have any other additional tidbits about Miss Atwood? Yes, I do. Um, before I get into my one big little tidbit, if that makes any sense whatsoever. I love that show. <laughs> just a quick sort of primer on her for those who maybe haven't listened to the episode we did. She's Canadian. She was born in 1939 in Ottawa, and she is still very much working. Her most recent book, The Testaments, came out just last year. And Toby, just to address what you brought up at the end of your review, I tried to find really quickly if um, Atwood had ever commented on whether or not this book was autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Well, she's never publicly said it was. There are some similarities that people, including you, have noticed. But she says specifically, um, her daughter was a teenager when she was sort of getting the idea for this book, and she observed the social dynamics of a group of young girls. Mm. Um, so she was sort of taking the observation role for that part of it. But of course, there are other similarities to her autobiography. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. Good to know. Yeah. In terms of uh, additional tidbits, you may have seen if you've been sort of following book Twitter like I do, and you follow Margaret Atwood like I do, you might have seen that to keep busy during this pandemic um, and to bring some art to the world, especially um, some sort of theatrical art to the world, uh, she made a puppet show based on The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe that aired on BBC. So she's been keeping very busy. (laughs) Wow. And I have a quote from The Guardian about that. Uh, Mary Beard, the two-fisted Cambridge classicist who understands crises, debacles, and pandemics, being an authority on ancient Rome, asked me to do a remote item for the BBC Front Row Late Show, which usually reviews theater, but can't now because there isn't any. Just a little something, she said, as long as it's on plagues. This awakened the kraken of my deep past of a childhood reading horror literature, not only the Betty Crocker picture cookbook for proto-homemakers, but also the collected work of Edgar Allan Poe. Who let that into the kitty section? of the library. So me and the Mask of the Red Death go way back. Add to the mix my early career as a teenage puppeteer and the fact that my baby sister Ruth and I had already watched all of the TV drama series Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries and the devil found work for idle hands to do. We decided to stage the Mask of the Red Death using nothing but what we could find in the house. Out came the old Christmas wrapping paper and the saved up bows and stainless steel tableware. Prince Prospero is played by a champagne bottle, the courtiers by wine glasses, and the fortified abbey by the knives and forks. Never mind that you can't go to the West End. You can watch the Mask of the Red Death instead. It's amateur theater at its most amateur. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that last line was going to be a compliment. Like, it's amateur theater at its most, like, impressive and homemade. It's like, nope, at its most amateur. Well, I mean, it's Margaret Atwood talking about her own work there. She's not going to big up herself. I I feel a little 
personally attacked by that only because, as I was saying, I've been planning this nest for our, for our baby daughter and thinking of the books I was going to put on it. And I straight up yesterday was like, oh, the collected Edgar Allan Poe. I should put that up there. <laughs> That's a very funny coincidence. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, is that why your baby registry, everything is just jet black? Yeah, it's crazy. So... Yeah, in lieu of giving you more facts about Margaret Atwood because she has been covered, I'll leave you with that. And uh, if you can, seek it out. I think she also announced that it's not available everywhere in the world yet because it is licensed to the BBC, but she's working on getting it released for everyone. Nice. Awesome. Well, Cat's Eye by Margaret Atwood, four stars, puppet show, eight stars, clearly. Awesome. (laughs) This week on the podcast, we had our second to-read list book club pick. It is Taylor Jenkins reads Daisy Jones and the Six. Drama, Yay. drama, drama. Rock and roll. So we got a lot of listener feedback, um, questions as well as thoughts. And I know mm-hmm. you guys read it. Dylan did not get a chance to read this one, but. Oh, man, Dylan, I think you would have enjoyed this so much more than Redwall. Yeah, that's a shame that if I could have picked one of the two, it would have been this one. I know, but Bailey had the one copy. Dude, it's on Audible. It's. Well, that sounds like it's on you. Excuses, excuses. In my defense, I didn't think of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, this book let's do a let's do a progressive plot. Um, Dylan, I ca- guess you can't participate. Huh? What? I mean, if you want to, he hasn't read it. Make up no. what you think happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dylan will have the last line. In Taylor Jenkins reads Daisy Jones and the Six, the members of the classic rock band tell the tale in a VH1 behind the music style interview of how the band was formed. Following the format of an oral history, we chronicle the band's rise from obscurity to amazing success and the volatile relationship between the two lead singers. The two lead singers being one, Billy Dunn, a married, charismatic heartthrob, I guess, and Daisy Jones, <laughs> the it girl of the 1970s Sunset Strip, um, who is hung up on pills and on Billy. Ooh. Bum, bum, bum. Very and Dylan, what do you want to add yeah, to this? Dylan says, seal the, the deal. The band is broken up when a new member joins who happens to be the manifestation of the Black Plague wearing a red mask. No, 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 yep, no. Yep, yep. Yeah. Nah. Nope. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. And it's Dylan, all performed by puppets. <laughs> Dylan, for the last time, this is not a platform to plug your fan fiction. <laughs> I want to read Dylan's fan fiction. Yeah, actually, I um, do. Yeah, I would probably read it too. <laughs> so I'll share some listener feedback. Uh, first bit of feedback, Jillian writes in, not your girlfriend, Jillian, a different What? One. I was going to say, she didn't read this book. Uh, she says, loved it. I was a big fan of Behind the Music as a kid. So this filled that part of my soul. Also, I love Fleetwood Mac and all the drama. So this was great. So Jillian is starting to point out some connections that she made yeah. that also maybe some of us made. I feel like it's hard and will not to we, make that connection. will uh, we see maybe if Taylor Jenkins Reid herself has made these connections? Ooh. Yeah. Find out during your research section. I love it when Andrew teases his research for us. It's so tantalizing. <laughs> <laughs> C.E. Hogan 22 writes, reminded me so much of Almost Famous, was a good escape read during this time. I agree. I didn't think about Almost Famous, but now, yeah, that fits. I thought about that with um, Jonah, the uh, Rolling Stone writer, because he sounded kind of young. And I was like, maybe it's like the kid in Almost Famous. Okay. Kate writes, I have never so desperately wanted fictional songs to be real. Fair. J.B. Cahill says, not my jam. That's it. That's all she says. Dun, dun, dun. To Kate, I would say, if you're interested in being very disappointed, you can download the Audible version of this book at the end of which there is, uh, what is it, Honeybee, Bumblebee, what's the name of their song? Honeycomb. Honeycomb, yeah. So there's a there's a recorded version of Honeycomb at the end of that uh, Audible production, and it is a letdown. <laughs> we'll see if they get it better in the TV part, Ooh. teasing my research yes. yet. Keep Again. on teasing that research. <laughs> <laughs> Alex writes in, he also wrote in for Redwall, so he says, I hope everyone is well. I ended up liking this book even more than the last one, so I guess I'm in a book club now. Oh, no. Ooh. Daisy Jones and the Six is such a great book. So much heartbreak and emotion. I didn't look up anything on the author, so I'm asking you guys, was it inspired by Fleetwood Mac? So we'll get into that. Teaser alert. Andrew, your research had better better be amazing. I cannot stress enough how much you need to stay tuned for the research. (laughs) (laughs) All will be revealed. (laughs) This last review 
is from our mom who texted this like five minutes before recording began. She says, I really liked Daisy Jones and the Six. As a boomer, which I kind of hate to admit sometimes, I lived through the 70s. They were really crazy times and ex- explained the angst of rock and roll. The relationships were so real and I really liked the journalistic style of the book. She then goes on to spoil the end of the book, so I won't say what that end is, but she basically liked the end. And then she said, I give this book four stars and will keep it in my iBooks. Smiley face. And just to give context, uh, Bailey and Andrew's mom was in Fleetwood Mac, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she was the frequently forgotten about uh, melodica player that just kind of ran in the back. And then she was kicked out because her instrument didn't sound right. (laughs) Uh, It's fair. So um, those are everybody's reviews. Thank you guys for sending them in. We'll get to your questions after we say our reviews. But basically, I agree with what everybody said. I, um, I really like this book. I found it to be a quick read. I just sat down and just burned through it like I would, I guess, a magazine article, a Rolling Stone article about the band. I think I read it in two sittings, both because I had to read it for the podcast, but also because I was into it. And I, one, one thing that I really want to say is that I actively dislike reading music biopics or article mm. or music reviews. And I know that I'm in the minority on this, but I, for some reason, my brain just cannot conceptualize the descriptions of the music. Like I love to listen to music, but I can't picture it when I'm reading it. I've had this experience with several music biopics I've had to read. And also we get Entertainment Weekly and I always feel like I have to read every article, but the music section is a slog. And you know what? Life is too short. Why am I making myself read it? I don't know. Yeah, don't. I don't know why you make yourself read everything in a magazine in general. I have to read it cover to cover. That's That's not the purpose of a magazine, objectively. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm I'm doing it wrong. Anyway, but... (laughs) But this book really connected with me. And maybe it's because it's a fictional band. And so I could imagine the music however I wanted to imagine it versus trying to like put together the song, you know, the chords and and picture what the actual song was. But I didn't have the same problems I normally do with, with music books. And I also was pleasantly surprised by it because I've read several of Taylor Jenkins Reid's other books, um, which are primarily romances. And they're wonderful, but they're very different from this one. This one I, is not oh, really? a romance. I was wondering about that, doing the research and looking up her like backlog. And I was like, this seems incredibly different. Yeah, I've read, I think, two or three of her romances. And they're very like good, but standard romance, you know. Well, and to be fair, this has large elements of romance in it. Like there is like love story and drama. Oh, definitely. But it's not, it's not the same. No. It's not the same feeling. But I think... What Taylor Jenkins Reid does well across all of her books is her characterization. She does a great job of creating these like realistic characters that are flawed, but you're still rooting for them. And I think the choice to use an oral history as the format was very smart because you can get into everybody's head and everybody has a different perspective. And of course, I'm sure we're going to go into it, but like people tell the story differently. So you have to decide like who you align with more, who you believe more. Mm -hmm. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, I thought that was really smart. And I kept comparing it to Fleetwood Mac. And I, after yeah. I finished it, I immediately put on rumors and started listening to it. So there's that. Yeah. But yeah, I think I have no reason not to give it five stars. So I'm going to give it five stars. Hey, there you go. What about you guys? I feel similarly to you. I really got caught up, caught up in it. And I finished reading this like a week and a half ago, which is crazy for me. I read it in probably four days. Mm-hmm. So Without a deadline, me reading something in four days is pretty remarkable. So yeah, I definitely got caught up in it. I really enjoyed it. I left the book after feeling like it was this whirlwind and I immediately went to Goodreads and rated it five stars. Mm. Since then, I have cooled on it a little bit, not because I have any huge problems with it, but because I like took that step back and sort of thought about it a little more. And I, I think if I could go back again, I would put it four stars, but that's not important because what's important is it was a fun read and the experience of it was really fun. It just upon some like deeper examination, some things stuck out at me. And fortunately, the things that sort of stuck out at me about it are spoilers. <laughs> so I don't really want to say what they are. It's tough, but yeah. I either, I either rated it four or five stars, very similar to Andrew in that... I had a total blast. Um, I listened to it on Audible. It's a full cast production. It's one of the more impressive and well-performed full cast productions that I've listened to on Audible. Uh, Sometimes I find them a little bit disjointed, but because this is like an interview style book where the characters are talking directly to you, it actually works incredibly well uh, for this audiobook. 
And yeah, uh, really, really during the experience, loved listening to it. Probably when I step back, I'd be like, okay, I'm probably not going to remember it forever. But as far as that type of book where when you're listening to it or reading reading it, you just disappear into it and everything you forget everything else, that's this kind of book for me. And it's, it's a very fun experience. And I will say that I gave it to my mom for Christmas, uh, and she loved it too. She gave it five stars too. So this is a good gift book, I would say. It's a very solid bet that I think most people would enjoy this book. Yeah, I agree. It fits almost every audience, maybe not our future baby, but like most people. (laughs) Eventually your future baby. You're giving them, uh, like, you know, sometimes you're afraid to give people books as a gift because you don't want to give homework. This is not homework. This is, this is, this is a candy book for sure. Yeah. Great for this time, frankly. (laughs) I agree. So before we get into listener questions, I know that we might want to talk about some, some parts of the ending that would definitely be spoilers. So if you're not interested in being spoiled, skip ahead a little bit to the facts in the game so that you won't hear the ending. Okay, so we're in spoilers now. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Don't be spoiled. All is allowed. There are no laws. <laughs> OMG, can you guys believe Billy was an angel and he came down from heaven to save everybody? <laughs> you read a different book, Toby. <laughs> Touched by an angel, 70s edition. What my mom said in her review is that she really loved that the band ended because these two women respected each other so much, Camilla Mm -hmm. and Daisy. And I agree. I thought that was a great ending. But Andrew, you said that you had issues with the ending. So I'm curious to know what what, what they were. The confusion for me came from the end of the book where it's revealed that Julia, who is the daughter of Camilla and Billy, um, is actually the person compiling the interviews here. And they try to like work around that and only reveal it so that it can go back to the format and then it throws the rest of the book in sharp relief. But they use that to reveal that Camilla has passed away. I don't know. It, part of that just didn't really jive with me. I didn't like that as a as a twist. Um, I also didn't really like the fact that it's revealed that the guitarist or the bassist, Pete, is actually alive the whole time because I was just assuming he was going to die because <laughs> he doesn't talk the whole book. And I was like, I feel like that's an easy way to be like, okay, no, this guy's fine. And I was like, I think it would be a stronger story if someone in the band did die because that was such a fixture of 70s bands. Yeah. But, you know, these are these are small quibbles. I agree with you. Um, I, I thought Camilla's death was sad um, and it affected me, but I didn't love the, the reveal of the person who's assembling the documentary because I felt like it was a question that I was never asking for the whole book. I was never like, oh my god, I've got to figure out who's assembling these clips. It was like, nope, I get it. It's like VH1. Like, I'm never watching an episode of Behind the Music and wondering, who's the editor? Is it someone personally related to the story of ZZ Top? So, yeah. I didn't. I felt like that was, in a book that was really full of strong emotional arcs and really earned moments, I felt like that turn at the end was just kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is, Toby. You just said it better than me. It didn't feel earned to me, and it felt like a way to get emotion that wasn't being built to. I can get behind that. As it was going, I kept thinking something's going to happen with Julia because they kept mentioning her in times when they didn't have to. Hmm. I think it would have been more powerful if you knew from the beginning that Julia was the one writing it because the idea of a girl interviewing the woman who's her idol, who is also the person that like could have broken up her parents' marriage. That's interesting. Like knowing that from the beginning maybe would be more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it throws like a an interesting filter over everything that's said because now you know who they're talking to. And so yeah, I I feel like if that was the conceit, I would have liked it a little earlier. And I again I'm I'm quibbling with a book that I initially rated five stars <laughs> and like maybe has dropped down to a four. So I still really loved the book. But that you and Toby just described the emotion I had now thinking about the book a little better than I did. Teamwork. One other thing, and this is just a question, it's not really even a quibble. So many of the reviews and things I, I found in doing the research were like, I loved Daisy. I didn't really like Daisy oh, as a person. No, neither did I. See, I was surprised that I did like her. I didn't I didn't hate her, but I just I was surprised to see so many reviews that were like, Daisy is my like idol. And I was huh. like, is that what you got out of the book? Ooh, yeah. I don't think that she's my idol. She clearly no. had some serious drug problems. Yeah. And she's not always caring. Yeah. Yeah. I found I found her like quite cold and closed off and not really of her own volition. Like obviously, you know, her childhood plays into it. But yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't say I had like a bunch of affection for Daisy. Yeah. And this isn't even really a criticism. It's yeah. just I found it odd that that was sort of the response to the book because I think it's more interesting that she's a complicated character mm-hmm. who you get a bunch of different sides for and not just this like airbrushed idol. Yeah. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe it's a thing where... 
What I liked about Daisy, she has a lot of negatives, but I liked that she was confident in her own skin and just this incredible feminist of just like, I'm going to dress the way I'm going to dress. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And I'm going to not care what men think. And I liked that. This is encapsulated with the line at the end of the first chapter, which I think is, I'm sure is probably like people are getting it tattooed on themselves and stuff, but it's, um, (laughs) I had absolutely no interest in being somebody else's muse. I am not a muse. I am the somebody. Thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Sorry for bogarting this interview. No, no, no. You've you've raised two really interesting things that we all discussed. Yeah. um, Here are some other questions from listeners. These questions, I think, could be spoiler-ish. Heads up. So... C.E. Hogan, 22, writes, A big point of discussion for my book club was who do you believe most when the story's conflicted? Who could be trusted? Hmm. Yeah. That's a really good question. Camilla felt trustworthy to me. So I feel like she's she's kind of grounded. She like represents this like real world perspective on all the crazy drugs and rock and roll that's going on. So I felt like I trusted her, um, especially in light of what she does later in the book. She seems like a very down-to-earth personality. So I trusted her. I feel like I can tell you who I didn't trust, but I don't know if I can tell you who I did trust. Yeah, that's true. Who didn't you trust? I didn't trust Billy. A lot of the stories conflicted with Billy's. And it's like, if if four people are telling you one thing and Billy's telling you another thing, that makes me believe the four other people. And I think it's also in his best interest to not seem like a jerk. And I also empathized with Daisy when she's kind of saying like, we can both tell that there's an attraction between us. Like, and it's annoying to me that you're not admitting it. You're not admitting that you wrote that song about me when it's clearly about me, et cetera. So I didn't trust Billy. And I feel like I would say Daisy, but then I also know empirically that she's high off her mind for the whole book. So it's like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe like Eddie, the random guitar player. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, but Eddie's so bitter. Yeah. yeah. And I, I agree with you that Oftentimes, Billy is is not trustworthy, especially about the stuff about the creative direction of the story. But he also is oftentimes the only sober one. So, like, there are Mm. other situations where he's talking about other things where I feel like he's the most trustworthy. But then there are situations where I absolutely don't trust Daisy, situations where she is speaking complete truth, like you're saying. And, like, the relationship between Graham and Karen, which I really liked. Yeah, me too. That was one of my favorite parts of the book. Graham is uh, the guitarist and Billy's brother, and Karen is the keyboardist, and they have a sort of secret romance. I loved that dynamic. That was really powerful. And the fact that no one else could see it, I thought was really cool. That's another one of our questions, just to interject. Kate says, let's talk about Karen and Graham. What was this hot mess? (laughs) I also liked it. So I don't agree it was a hot mess. Yeah, no, I liked it. It made me sad. But yeah, I think ultimately this boils down to I trusted Warren the drummer the most. Because he was just there for a good time. He had no agenda. Living on his boat. <laughs> Loved him. Warren was great. <laughs> yeah, Warren was great. I think I trusted Graham a lot. I really liked Graham, yeah. and then I was disappointed in him in the end. Yeah, I liked Karen, too. So in the book, Karen is voiced by Judy Greer, which is a highlight. Ah. So, yeah, I loved her character. Um, but Graham is such a great portrayal of like someone who seems so laid back and so friendly and so affable. But then, yeah, toward the end of the book, he makes some choices where you're like, ooh, buddy, uh-oh. <laughs> so it's like that experience of like looking, like watching someone that you really care for do something bad where you're like, oh, no. Yeah, it was interesting. There was some line that Graham said to Karen. They're having this affair and Karen gets pregnant and she very much does not want to have children. But Graham is just kind of like, we could find another keyboard player. Like you could have a baby. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's just interesting because they're thinking about it in retrospect. And both of them recognize like that was the worst thing he could have said. You yeah. know, obviously she wanted to be the keyboard player. She didn't want to be a mother. She didn't, she didn't really love him either. Like she didn't want yeah. to be his housewife. So yeah, it was tragic but very entertaining. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and such a strength of the book that that's the like secondary story that we're just getting peppered through. Yeah. Yeah, so cool. Well, and I th- I feel like she does a little bit of a magic trick too where for a while with Graham and Karen you're like, "Oh, so this is going to be like the candy on the side where things work out fine and there's a little bit of oh, romantic tension and they're sneaking around and and then it's all going to end up happy and then when it doesn't, for me it punched even harder because I kind of assumed that she was giving us a little bit of a break with this story. That's funny. I thought they were doomed from the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Maybe it's a glasses half full, glasses half empty thing. Yeah. Barely assumes doom at all times. (laughs) (laughs) The last question that we got, I think, leads into your facts, Andrew. So let's do it. You guys have been waiting for it. These facts. 
Friend of the show, Camille, writes, A lot has been said about Daisy Jones as Stevie Nicks. Is there some Grace Slick in there, too? So before answering that, I'm going to throw that over to you, Andrew, so you can give us some context of what is and is not canon in terms of like, is this Fleetwood Mac? Is this Jefferson Airplane? What is this? You tell us and then we can discuss. That's a great question. So the short answer, and I think what Taylor Jenkins Reid would want me to say is it's not any of them. It's an entirely fictionalized band that is its own thing. And this doesn't represent what actually happened with real people. Mm that said she has been completely upfront that she was inspired to write this because of Fleetwood Mac's album Rumors ah. and the relationship between Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. She's uh-huh. completely upfront about that. So that's the inspiration point and uh, a lot of the the characters sort of come from her playing around with that in her head and, and creating a story. So yes, I didn't see any mention of uh, Grace Slick specifically. Uh, it seems from everything I've read that Taylor Jenkins redid a lot of research, so it's very possible that as well. The one that is canon is that it was inspired by Fleetwood Mac. Got it. I mean, I think Grace Slick has more of the look I was thinking of with Daisy Jones versus Stevie Nicks. At first, I was like, I don't know if this is Fleetwood Mac. And then as soon as they started their big album... And I was like, oh, this is rumors. This is just going to be rumors. Yeah. Um, and then I was even like <laughs> so tracking we, which song was which song. You might do really well on the game, Bailey, but we'll see. <laughs> Yay. So to that end, typical caveat of a modern author, there is very little about Taylor Jenkins Reid on the internet, even less than you might think, because she seems to be aggressively private. So her birthday exists nowhere, <laughs> including the biography website I went to that called it out saying, we will update this as soon as we have it, but we cannot find it anywhere. She is a vampire. <laughs> I think whenever I see that, I assume it means she's been alive forever <laughs> and will be alive forevermore. Bulk of this comes from an interview with The Guardian. My second shout out of the day, um, along with ordering from local businesses, if you have any extra bucks and you use The Guardian, throw a couple bucks their way, they are hurting for advertising revenue right now. So this is a, an interview with Taylor Jenkins Reading on The Guardian. The interview is conducted by Catherine Bromwich, in case you're looking back for that. What drew you to this story, Taylor Jenkins Reed? I'm fascinated by people we make famous, and I'm drawn to the difference between what something looks like on the outside versus what it is like to live. So I wanted to write about the conflict between characters who have this amazing ability to create things together, but personal relationships that are much more fraught. We've seen many examples of that in rock, the most obvious being Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham. Fleetwood Mac are a band and a soap opera. So she goes on throughout this interview, and I, if if you like this book and you want to get a little more context, I'd recommend you checking it out. Um, it's very long, so I don't want to bore you by reading it all out, but I will add this question, which closes out the interview, which is, do you know if anyone in Fleetwood Mac has been sent a copy of this book? Hmm. And her answer is, oh God, I hope so, but huh. I have no idea. But here's the thing. Almost nothing in the book actually happened with Fleetwood Mac. It's a Fleetwood Mac vibe, but not their story. I haven't actually ripped off their lives. I just wanted to spend more time listening to rumors and needed a good reason to do it. You don't need a good reason to listen to rumors. <laughs> <laughs> the tension between Billy and Daisy is very different from, you know, Stevie and Lindsay. Like, I expected there to be more to their conflict, um, but it was all, you know, in the, in the undercurrents. Just to give a little more context about uh, Taylor Jenkins Reid as a person, um, in that same Guardian interview, uh, she's asked, what kind of reader were you as a child? A Taylor Jenkins reader. (laughs) Horrible. I used to go to English class having only read the Cliff's Notes. Anything I could do to get out of reading a book, I would do. I just think it... It was just because I hadn't learned that it was something to love yet. It just felt like homework. I had a lot of making up to do at that point. She's asked follow-up, what book changed your mind? And she answers, when I was about 13, I got a copy of Bridget Jones's Diary by Helen Fielding. Page one and I was in. I could not get enough of it. It's hard to remember now what a breath of fresh air it was when it first came out. I finished it and said, mom, take me to the bookstore. (laughs) A bit later, I got really into Nick Hornby, High Fidelity, About a Boy. I loved them. Nice. Oh, that's great. The idea of your child turning to you and say, take me to the bookstore, <laughs> Bailey, that must have just really got you in the feels. <laughs> I'm not I'm not crying openly, but like on the inside, yes. Mm. <laughs> I can just imagine my child say, turning to me and saying, Father, take me to the street. We must find some street books. <laughs> <laughs> Just to fill in a few more little biographical details about Taylor Jenkins Reid, um, she grew up in Acton, Massachusetts, and she now lives in Los Angeles with her husband and their daughter and their dog. And in an interview on YouTube for Reese uh, Witherspoon's 
book club channel. Uh, she says that she needs to work in her office. She can't work in a cafe and she works on a desktop computer and she needs to always have an iced tea with her while she works. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, uh, this book is being adapted into a series on Amazon. It is not fully cast yet, but it is coming relatively soon. I will probably watch at least a couple episodes of it. I'm, I'm intrigued. I mean, I feel like it'll translate well to a, yeah. to a TV movie, Definitely. TV show. I wonder if they'll do it like a mockumentary or like make yeah. it look like documentary style. Yeah. From what I could tell, they're planning on doing it documentary style. Cool. Awesome. Great facts, Andrew. Good facts, Andrew. Thank you. So Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. I would say between four to five stars. I said five. Um, but definitely check it out. If, if you like fun, if you like joy, read <laughs> this book. All right, Andrew, do you have a game for us? Okay. Are you guys ready for a game? Game, Heck game, yeah. game. If you don't love the game... You will never play the game. <laughs> I'm so glad you guys both are fans of rumors. <laughs> the game, we'll play it together. <laughs> <laughs> the name of the game this week is I Heard a Rumor about Margaret Atwood. <laughs> so the way the game works is you will each take turns. There will not be a buzzing system. You will each have a turn. I tried to make each of the puzzles the same amount of difficulty. So I have written sentences for you. In the sentences, there are both title um, from a track from Rumors by Fleetwood Mac and the title of a Margaret Atwood piece of work. It could be a novel Ooh. or a collection of poetry or a short story collection. Wow. Got it. Those both exist within these sentences. You will each have one at a time, so there's no buzzing. And the scoring system works like this. If you identify the items, like what the titles are, they're each worth one point. You get an additional point for correctly identifying which one belongs to who. And if you get all of them right, you get five points. So I, I wanted to make it flexible because I put some red herrings in there so I could see you getting that the, the rumor song correctly, but not getting everything right. So I wanted to make it a little flexible here. Okay, cool. Because I don't care. Who wants to go first? Me, me. Bailey gets to go first. Congratulations. <laughs> All right. Number one. The house needed ample improvements, but had good bones and was in beautiful, heartbreaking Silver Springs, Maryland. Okay. Well, Silver Springs is the song. That's correct. What? And uh, that, so that's two points okay. for you there. Um, I'm going to say good bones. I'm going to guess that's the Margaret Atwood. That is completely correct. Five yes! points, Bailey. Yes. I just realized I know only the highlights from the album rumors <laughs> it's my favorite i album. tried to do a mix so we'll see um yes good bones is a short uh story collection from 1992 that's a good Margaret guess Atwood. Bailey. nice i didn't know that yes i didn't either i was a guess i didn't know silver springs either <laughs> you could be myself okay, i'm stopping so that's the one that regret me and the book is based on apparently mm. uh-huh so toby your turn okay don't stop now said the captain the whale is surfacing Okay, well, is, uh, is Don't Stop Now a Fleetwood Mac song? I will say yes. Is it? Well, identify all your items. Okay. Identify uh, all your items. Don't Stop Now. I'm sorry, we'll, the whole sentence one more time. Don't Stop Now, said the captain. The whale is surfacing. Um, don't Stop Now. Don't Stop Now is the Fleetwood Mac, and then the whale is the is the Margaret Atwood work? Wrong. So, I'm so sorry. Surfacing is a 1972 novel by Margaret Atwood. Oh, no. And I can only give you one of two possible points for saying Don't Stop Now because the song is Don't Stop. Come on, oh, Toby. Duh. Parentheses, oh, thinking on. about tomorrow. Oh, that's what. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's all right. They, I think they get progressively harder. So, I, uh, <laughs> oh, or they get, there's a mix. So, I think there's an opportunity for you to get complete points Fantastic. and Bailey to get zero. So, don't worry. There's no opportunity for me to get zero. Bailey's not an option. Okay. I guarantee you, Bailey, we'll get at least two points in this next one, <laughs> yes. but we'll see. Um, all right, Bailey, are you ready? Yes. Young man, put the chain down before you oh. do this family and all our friends serious bodily harm. <laughs> well, the chain, my favorite I know song these, rumors. I know these ones. I know both of them. <laughs> That's uh, the thing. It's so tough to know which ones you guys are going to know. So, uh, A, I'm going to know everything on rumors. So, the chain, um, and then... I'm going to say serious bodily harm is the Margaret Atwood. Uh, you fell into the same trap as Toby. It is just bodily harm, so you only get the one point there. Okay. Okay, but Toby, you have an opportunity to, to catch up here. Here we go. And bodily harm is a 1981 novel by Margaret Atwood. All right. Mr. Cooper, tell me your nightmares, your dreams, your hopes, your fears. We have plenty of time to speak before the sunrise. Okay, so that'll be dreams for the Margaret, uh, for the Margaret Atwood, for the uh, Fleetwood Mac. Good job, Toby. Um, Correct. 
And then I'm going to say before the sunrise, but that's a guess. Again, it is uh, just the sunrise, um, oh. but you get one point for that. So you equaled Bailey this turn. Okay. All right. Those keeping track at home, Bailey has eight points. Toby has four, but we've made it clear that it's pretty easy to catch up in this game if you get all the points. And the sunrise is a 1986 short story uh, by Margaret Atwood. Dang, Margaret Atwood, you prolific. <laughs> all right, Bailey, you ready for your last question? Yeah. All right. John ran out of the tent and back towards his car. I'm never going back again. I am a man of simple comforts. Well, never going back again is, yeah. is Fleetwood Mac. Uh, simple comforts, I'll say, is Margaret Atwood. Great guess. Incorrect. It's <gasps> The Tent. Ooh. The Tent is a 2006 story collection, so you only get two points there, Bailey. That puts you at 10, which means it's impossible for Toby to win. <laughs> Wait, but, but he should do it all, so I should be acknowledged that I knew all the rumors once. It should be. However, Toby... I'm going to switch it up here. If you get this one completely correct, I'm going to give you a bonus point. Hooray. Because you were hoisted by guessing the right thing, but the wrong chunk of it several times to get a tie here. So if you get a perfect score, it's a tie. Okay. Fantastic. Because I make the rules and I can change them whenever I want. Yay. All right. You are happy. Mother, you are happy and not mired in loneliness. And if you're not, I don't want to know. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you got the really easy, you got one really yeah, easy yeah, one, yeah, so you yeah. also got this hard one. Um, <laughs> you want me to say it again? Yes, please. You are happy. Mother, you are happy and not mired in loneliness. And if you're not, I don't want to know. I'm going to say I don't want to know is the Fleetwood Mac and uh, Mother is the Margaret Atwood. You got two points for the <gasps> for the Fleetwood Mac, but it is You Are Happy. Oh. Um, you Are Happy is a 1974 poetry collection by Margaret Atwood. <sighs> so, Bailey, you are the rightful champion. Bailey earned that one. Andrew, you make gaming fun. Yeah, I thought that was going to be in there. Although that's not off rumors, is it? Yeah, it is. Oh, it is? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm glad you had fun with that. It was a fun one to make. And again, keep picking Margaret Atwood books because the games can be very flexible when she is one of the options to build the game off of. Nice. And I will say that I was listening to this album, you know, pretty much constantly after finishing the book. So that did give me me an advantage. (laughs) All right. It is that time on the podcast where Dylan chooses books at random from our shelves for us to read next. Before he goes for Toby, my next book is the next to read list book club pick, and you listeners voted, and it's Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. I'm excited. This one blew the other choices out of the water. Uh, so you guys voted it in. Rebecca is my book. And now it's time for Toby's The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. Time for some secondhand shoes. Okay. That one was good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Toby, you have. Number 18, The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon. Oh, my. (laughs) Well, at least it's not like Against the Day or V. (laughs) It's quite short, I believe. I think it's only like 80 pages or something. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's not very long. I actually might have that on my shelf. Nice. Oh, cool. It might be on my list, too. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. I can't wait to bring my tiny brain to bear on the staggering genius that is Thomas Pynchon. All right, great. So next week on the podcast, we have a mini-sode. We're going to talk about which authors we would want to be quarantined with. Um, And then in two weeks, I'm covering Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, and Andrew has Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ng. Thanks for listening to The To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the to read list podcast and on Twitter at to read list pod. If you enjoyed this podcast today, please go on to iTunes or your podcast rating app of choice and write us five stars. It helps us so much with getting the podcast out there. It makes us feel good about ourselves. And uh, it's very simple and easy to do. It's a beautiful interface they have there on your uh, podcast reading app of choice. All of them are great. Do it. Five stars. <laughs> um, also, if you enjoyed what you heard here, please tell a friend or someone you think might enjoy the podcast. Word of mouth is our best way of finding new listeners. And hey, we'd really appreciate it. You know what? You can go your own way. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Though. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you next week. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books, books. books. books.